We are looking this week in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. If you have your Bibles, let's open and look at our passage. It says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. What a beautiful text of scripture, exalting and seeking to describe our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 2 through 4, one of the passages we looked at this week, I want to read to you because it is such, again, a beautiful and powerful description of who Christ is. Listen to verses two through four in Hebrews. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. We know from John chapter 1 that he was in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. We know that Jesus Christ, from our study in Genesis, is the agents through whom God created all that exists. Because God spoke, and Jesus is the word of the living God. And it is through Jesus Christ, as we just read in Colossians, that everything has been created, and it's been created in him, and through him, and for him, and he's holding it all together. So when we talk about him being preeminent, we understand he is literally in a class all of his own. N.T. Wright said, What was before said in reference to Israel's God, Yahweh, is now said in reference to Jesus Christ. He has not displaced the God of Abraham, the God of the Exodus. He has made him known. He has revealed the invisible to us by taking on flesh and coming to earth. He was the agent of creation. Verse 16 tells us that. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, even demonic spirits. This is also a reference to the same thrones and dominions and powers that Ephesians 6 makes reference to. He is Lord over all, has created all, and ultimately has say over all. 
Apart from him, we know we can do nothing. Not only is he preeminent, he is the one through whom we live and breathe and have our being. This is a glove, a kitchen glove. Those of you who may not have been really familiar with these are very familiar after two years of COVID because you've seen many people wear these gloves. But if there's not a hand in the glove, the glove can do nothing, can it? This glove is a picture of us apart from Christ. John 15 tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. But when he fills us, and what is he describing in John 15? The vine and the branches. The branch receives life and bears fruit through its attachment to the vine. When Jesus Christ fills us, he begins to flow through us, and we now have his spirit to empower us and to cause us to move and work. And I think a glove is a great illustration of this because he is the head of the church. We know our head, our brain, dictates our body movements, right? So as believers in Jesus Christ, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, should dictate the body movements of the church and our individual body movements because apart from him, we can do nothing. We're like this lifeless glove spiritually. Until we've been filled by the Holy Spirit, we cannot do anything that has eternal significance. And even as believers, when we're trying to grit our teeth and try harder and and will it into obeying God, he's calling us to surrender and let his Holy Spirit take over because he's given us his spirit to empower us. And we looked at that even last week. Jesus Christ is preeminent because he's the head of the church. To be preeminent means a position of superior status, to rise above or excel. It literally means he's in a class all by himself. It's not like he's number one of a list of things. He is in a class all by himself. Nothing and no one comes close to Jesus Christ. We know that from the exalted language Paul is using to describe him to us and to describe what he has done for us. I wrote down just a few things that I thought about that set Christ apart and make him preeminent. Number one on my list was that he is one in essence with God the Father and the Spirit. When he was praying for us in John 17, he prayed, and you've got scripture references here so you can look up some of these and do some further study of your own. Add to this list in your private study. But in John 17, when Jesus was praying for us and for his disciples, he said, Lord, may they be one, even as you and I are one. We've been invited into that Trinitarian relationship because we're now filled with the Holy Spirit. So we are united literally in essence. That means in nature. What did Peter say? We have now become partakers of the divine nature because his nature lives within us through the Holy Spirit. And the more we surrender to him, the more conformed we are to Jesus Christ, the more like him we become from the inside out. So he is one in essence with God the Father and the Spirit. He has the name that is above all names, the name at which every knee will bow on heaven, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every name Every person will bow to his name and give him glory. He has the name above all names. Philippians 2 tells us that. He's the firstborn of creation. We read that in verse 15 of Colossians 1. And it doesn't mean in time, it's in rank. He is the first of more to come. 
He came to be man for us to show us how to live. So he is first in rank. He's also the first fruit of the resurrection. And the scripture tells us that we will be like him. He is the first resurrected man to never die again. Other people were resurrected like Lazarus, but they would die again eventually. They were brought back in a physical temporal body. But Jesus Christ was raised in his resurrected body that he still has now seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the first fruit of the resurrection. And so we know because of him that we will have resurrected glory just as he does. When we see him as he is, we will be like him. He is our high priest. And I'm going to have to go to this one. It's in Hebrews. If you want to go to the right in your Bible, in Hebrews chapter 7. And if you've not read Hebrews in a while, I would encourage you. It is such a beautiful commentary on Christ and on the Old Testament. Hebrews 7, verses 26 through 28 tell us, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Aaron was a picture of the high priest who was to come. We know he was not perfect. He was just like us, right? He failed. He was not perfect. But we have a perfect high priest who didn't need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins because there were none. He offered himself perfect without spot or blemish for us in our place once and for all. So he is that beautiful sacrifice that we just read about in Hebrews 7. He is also our judge. We will stand before him one day. And I fully believe, as he has described for us in Revelation chapter 1, the one whose eyes shoot flames of fire. I believe the moment I die, because to die is to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, that I will stand before Jesus Christ and those beautiful fire-shooting eyes will whoosh, judge what I've invested my life in. And only those things that are eternal will come out as gold, silver, and precious stones. Everything else will go up in smoke. He is our judge. He is the judge before whom we will stand. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that. That's not the correct verse. 2 Corinthians 5.10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Whose judgment seat is it? Christ, right? So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we will stand before Jesus Christ as our judge, but he's also our mediator. The scripture tells us there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is our mediator, our go-between, our advocate between us and the Father. We read also in Colossians that he's the head of the church. We see that also in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians, that he's the head. And it's explaining the church body as the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. Ephesians tells us that we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and that the enemy and everything else is under his feet. And because we are in him, we are his body, it is under our feet as well because we are in Christ. So we have been given authority 
over the enemy because of our position in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 explains to us the various gifts within the body, that we've all been given gifts according to his will and placed in the body according to his will so that we can build up and edify the body. We're to edify one another. That's why we're to operate in the giftedness with which God has gifted us so that we bless the body, but we also give witness to a lost world that the Spirit of God is in our midst, that he is moving and working in us and through us. So he is the head of the church, but he is also king of kings and Lord of lords. And we see this in Revelation 19, verse 16, when he comes back on that white stallion and on his thigh is written, king of kings and Lord of lords. He is the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords. And we ask you this week as you're working through your homework to evaluate your own life and to ask yourself if Christ has first place in your life. We thought about our time, our family, marriage, finances, and our words, friendships, career, personal goals, social media. Ultimately, we need to ask ourselves, is he first? Because that's exactly what Colossians says. He is to have first place in everything. Is he first place in your life? He is not only the head of the church. In his preeminence, he is also our sufficient savior. Max Landers in his commentary said, reconciliation is the removal of hostility and the restoring of friendly relations to parties who have been at war. We were at war with God. Paul also calls reconciliation, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. When we were enemies of God, he shed his blood on that cross so that we could now be one with him in the Father through the Spirit because of his blood shed on the cross, reconciling us. And we were enemies in our thoughts and our actions Look at verse 21 in Colossians chapter 1. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So our thoughts are evil, which obviously is manifest through our actions, which are evil. We're engaged in evil deeds. N.T. Wright said, thought and act are both tainted, each pushing the other into further corruption in a mirror image of chapter 1, 9 through 10. The best comment on verse 21 is perhaps the sequence of thought in Romans 1, 21 through 32. And what is that sequence of thought? That when we begin to worship the creature instead of the creator, what happens? God removes his hand of restraint from us and we are given over to a depraved mind. And it gives a whole list of wicked things that will be a part of culture because culture as a whole, we as a people have turned our backs on God and we're worshiping ourselves instead of worshiping God. And it closes Romans chapter one by saying, not only do we know it's wrong, but we engage in it anyway, and we encourage others to join us. That's what we do when we're engaged in evil deeds, and that's what he's pointing out here, that we see that progression of thought in Romans 1, 21 through 32. Wrong thinking leads to vice, vice to further mental corruption, so that the mind, still not totally ignorant of God's standards, finds itself applauding evil. It's exactly what we're seeing happen in our culture. Our culture is literally applauding evil. What did verses 9 and 10 say if we jump back up in chapter 1? 
It says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of him, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So if we're walking in a manner worthy of him, to please him in all respects, and we're bearing spiritual fruit, then we're going to be holy in thought and deed not engaging in evil deeds. So there has to be a change, a transformation from the inside out. And that is what Paul is getting to in his letter here. He is saying, we've got to examine our flesh. And we're going to do this even more as we progress toward chapter three, when we're going to be told the things that we're to take off and the character of Christ that we are to put on. You know, Sunday night, we had a really special prayer and praise service. And as we were experiencing worship and hearing a brief message on the God of all hope and celebrating baptism, we saw a video. And the video was a young woman who was sharing about her life prior to Christ. And it was only a couple of years ago that she was without Christ, feeling hopeless, dissatisfied. But she reached out to a woman in our church because when COVID hit, she suddenly realized, I'm going to be homeschooling my children, and I don't know anything about that. So she reached out to one of her neighbors who happened to be a Bellevue member, and she connected her with a woman who was actively um, homeschooling her children because this particular mom's children were grown now. And this woman would be used by God to lead her to faith in Christ. Now, the full video was about eight minutes, but we asked them to break it down for us. I want you to see her and to hear her powerful testimony. I'm Mallory Seiler, and this is my story. So before summer 2020, words to describe myself, depressed, anxious, lost, drowning, empty, just really dreading every day that I woke up. Nothing could fill me at all. One day I texted Amanda and I said, I know God is working in our life. I can't explain that this is anything else but God. And she's like, well, can I ask you, have you ever accepted Jesus in your heart as your Lord and Savior? And I was like, no, but I'm ready. The next couple days, I would wake up and I would feel like it was Christmas morning, like I felt this freedom, <laughs> sorry, that I had been searching for for so long. And so I started reading the Bible, I started praying, and I started surrounding myself with these women, these families. It was a couple of weeks after we prayed on the phone and things just started every day. You felt the stronger love, the stronger freedom. How I would describe myself now is free, loved, happy, joyful, excited, on fire. I used to hear people say, oh, breaking free from the chains. And I thought that sounded so corny and weird, but I have broken free. I've tried almost everything. And I was chasing after something that I could not, could not hold and keep of. What I'm saying is that there is this freedom 
that nothing else can give you. No drinking can give you, no shopping habit, no relationship, no boyfriend, girlfriend. None of that can give you the freedom that Jesus Christ can give you. Can we praise the Lord? What a beautiful testimony. But I want to point something out. The dramatic change in her life. Did you hear what she said? She surrounded herself with these women who were believers and these families, and she's been growing in community. And what we're hoping and praying to accomplish through women's ministry is connection in your small group as you meet together, as you share with one another, because we don't just, we're not just transformed by knowing facts. We're transformed by being changed on the inside when our desires are changed, but that happens primarily in relationship as we see others who are further down the road than we are in their personal walk with Jesus Christ and we begin to learn from them. That's how I learned how to pray. When our first church, I just felt like, you know, I, I wanted to pray more, I, I, but here I was the pastor's wife and I felt so inadequate in the area of prayer and there was a couple in our church that were, I don't know, maybe we were 25 when Steve first became pastor and they were probably in their early 40s. Their children were young teens and I just asked Gwen, Gwen, can I just meet with you. May I pray with you? Steve and I met with them and prayed with them together. They walked with the Lord in incredible intimacy and trust, and they knew how to pray the word of God and to stand on his promises. And I learned so much from being around them. Transformation took place in my life. God has created us for community. He created us first and foremost to have a relationship with him. As we saw, we become partakers of the divine nature because the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, which is why we are to walk holy before him. We are to walk in a manner worthy of him, to please him in all respects, so that we're not quenching or grieving the flow of his Holy Spirit in our lives. And if we're wanting to walk in intimacy with him, then we've got to be willing to confess all revealed sin. Now, when we first get saved, God doesn't blast us with all the sin in our life, does he? He is tender and compassionate, and he gives us the obvious things. He gives us the things that are a little bit easier for us to say no to and to get rid of our lives. And then I was talking to somebody yesterday. I said, and it is, this is, I don't, I have not found a better analogy than this, peeling an onion. It's layer after layer after layer after layer. And when you're peeling an onion, what happens sometimes? Sometimes you shed tears, don't you? <laughs> sometimes it's painful. But the beauty is on the other side of that, there's such incredible freedom. Did you hear what Mallory said about the freedom she's experiencing because she's in Christ? The satisfaction that she has found in a love relationship with him. And so I want to encourage you, if there's something stirring within you and you're just out there thinking, I want to grow in Christ. I want to grow in my knowledge of the word. I want to grow in my intimacy with Christ. I want to grow in prayer. I want to know him more intimately. Seek out a woman that you have probably already noticed who you think is, is a little bit further down the road than you are spiritually and ask if you can just meet up for coffee. Don't ask her if she'll mentor you or, you know, disciple you initially because it, it might scare her to death. Because a lot of times believers who walk with Jesus haven't been formally discipled themselves and they don't really know or have a format for discipling, but they're more than willing to meet you for coffee or lunch and just share their life experiences. And so ask if you can just meet with them. I did that with so many godly women in every church we were in. And a lot of times when I'd meet with them, I'd bring a legal pad and I would just take notes. I'd bring my Bible and I would ask them questions and I would write down things and I would ask to be able to pray with them because I grew from bringing around women who walked intimately with Jesus. And there are so many women 
in our women's ministry that walk with Jesus. You have plenty to choose from. Reach out and ask somebody if you can meet with them and share. And you know, there's something about even just confessing that hunger and desire. And God begins to bring other people across your path to pour into your life so that you then can what? Share what you are learning with someone else so that you can pass it on to someone else as well. I've been reading a book recently that um, Drew Tucker gave me. It's called The Other Half of Church. Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but it's written by two men, Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks. And Jim Wilder is actually is a PhD in psychology, but he also has a theology degree. He calls himself a neurotheologian. <laughs> and um, Michael Hendricks is a former pastor and serves in a, in a ministry now helping people experience spiritual maturity, growth, and Christ formation in our lives. And part of the struggle for Michael as a pastor over discipleship in a church in Colorado was seeing people learn the facts about Christianity, but a lot of them not actually being transformed and developing the character of Christ, not really growing in spiritual maturity. And so he was frustrated by this and asking the Lord to help him with this at about the time somebody says, you need to meet Jim Wilder. Jim Wilder, this neurotheologian, joined these men for lunch one day and he began to share with them about how God has created our brains. And we studied this a little bit in our previous studies about neuroplasticity and how God created created our brains to literally be able to be renewed. Well, not only that, we have left hemisphere and a right hemisphere of our brain. We know that the left hemisphere is much more turned toward facts and knowledge and methods. The right hemisphere is more connected to relationships and emotions and even an artistic temperament will typically say, well, she's just more right-brained. She's more intuitive, she's more creative, artistic, she's right-brained. If she's a CPA or she's methodical, she's left-brained, right? I've always thought I was left-brained. Well, they have kind of sort of disproven that. It's kind of a myth that came out in the 60s, although there's some truth to it. But two hemispheres actually work together more than they initially thought back in the 60s. And now with neuroscience, they're able to actually see how the brain lights up when you're doing various activities. And it is true, the right side of the brain does light up more in relationships and joy and when our emotions are, are connected with someone else, and the left brain more with facts and knowledge and putting things in sequence. So there is some truth to that. And what he realized was that in his discipleship ministry, he had been just focusing on the left brain, just giving people facts and knowledge and telling them do these spiritual disciplines and this transformation will take place. Well, for people who were in community, and had the right brain thing going on, he saw greater growth and maturity. But there were some of them who got all the facts and came to the classes and supposedly even said they're doing some of these things, but they weren't changing. And then they would get frustrated and give up. And so he was frustrated. Lord, you know, I, I want to help the, I want all of the body of Christ to grow in knowledge of the Lord, but not only in knowledge, in character transformation. And character transformation comes from the inside out. So this book gives some insight into the importance of teaching, not just to accrue facts, but to engage in transformation. And it reveals the research that shows how important relationships actually are for actual life transformation. Um, there is, a, here's a summary of kind of what the author said, left brain discipleship emphasizes beliefs, doctrine, 
willpower, and strategies, but neglects right brain loving attachments, joy, emotional development, and identity. Now, these are some concepts that we're going to continue to develop in the weeks to come, but I want to share with you one other quote out of the book. It's from page 41. He says, a left brain view of Jesus' teaching would conclude that we need to choose to obey, and this will prove that we love him. This is exactly backwards. If I want to obey Jesus, I need to focus on right brain skills that help me love him and receive his love. My behavior will then take care of itself. Our brains are designed to change us through love. That is more connected with the right side of our brain. What's the greatest command? To love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have said over and over again, God's greatest command is for our greatest good. So he has commanded us to love him. Why? Because love is the the root, the foundation upon which all change takes place. Because if I really love him, I'm going to trust him. And out of that great love for him grows a desire to obey him. But it comes out of love, not duty. Now, I recognize there are times we do have to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do when our flesh is screaming at us to do the opposite. But I'm able to do it because my love for Christ surpasses my love for self or for that thing I think I'm wanting, or person, relationship, whatever it may be, because he has taken that place of preeminence in my life, because I've given him first place in everything, because I love him, I'm going to be able to choose him above whatever else is competing for my love and loyalty. Now think about John 14, 21. It says, "He." this is Jesus speaking, he who has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now, what is he saying? If you've got his commands and you keep him, what's its proof of? It's proof that you love him because you're not going to be able to obey him if you don't love him. He who has got my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose, reveal myself to him. So the greater your love, the greater your level of obedience and the greater the revelation God is going to give you of himself. Why do we open on Tuesday mornings with worship? What does worship engage? It's not just facts and logic and doctrine, is it? It is engaging our emotions because what does Scripture tell us we're to do? Enter his courts with thanksgiving, and his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. We are to come before him in worship and praise. In fact, 4 and 5 says, um, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, go into his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever, and his faithfulness continues to each generation. So how am I going to develop the right side of my brain so that I'm not just targeting facts and knowledge and doctrine, but I'm also engaging my emotions so that I can actually love him so that everything on the left side lines up correctly as well? Worship is one of the ways we can do that. What does music do? It engages our emotions, right? It opens us up to truth. And so we worship him because he tells us to come into his courts with thanksgiving and praise, but we also worship him to prepare our hearts so that our hearts are more tender and open to his presence as we come into his word so that we're open to hearing the truth from his word, even though sometimes it might sting. 
It might make us uncomfortable. It might bring us face to face with sin or an idol in our own lives and hearts. But we know ultimately because we love him and because he is love and he is good and he can be trusted that when he reveals something that needs to be confessed and forsaken, we're willing to do it now from past experience because we know even if I'm having a hard time letting go of this thing or this person or whatever it may be, this attitude or unforgiveness, I do it because I know the freedom on the other side is so joy-filled and that as I prove my love for him through obedience, I get a greater revelation of who he is. And the greater the revelation of who he is, the greater my love will grow. That's why Paul is going to such lengths to describe Christ and to tell us he must be first place in everything. He is to be preeminent in our lives. He is to be in a class all by himself. And Jesus even prayed for us that he said, what is eternal life? This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent, John 17, three. That was part of that prayer for us that we would know him because it's in knowing him and seeing him as he is that we trust him. And our love for him grows deeper and deeper. When my love for Jesus surpasses my love for self, sin loses its hold. And not only does it lose its hold, it loses its appeal. Did you notice the pictures and the women involved in Mallory's transformation? They took the time to not just share with her how to homeschool her children, but how to come to know Jesus Christ. And then they rallied around her and they invited her to church and they embraced her and they, they're walking with her and enabling her to come to know Christ and to grow in Christ's likeness. That is an incredible gift God has given us to offer to each other as we come alongside each other, encouraging one another in Christ's likeness, holding each other accountable. But we do it in love, not in judgment, in love as we come alongside each other. And our personal transformation will lead to cultural transformation. N.T. Wright went on to say, there's a whole range of ethical norms which God built into his world. Respect for persons and property, maintenance of family life and of the ecological order of creation, justice between individuals and groups. Christians must be in the forefront of those working to promote such causes. Many opportunities to speak about Jesus will occur in the undertaking of such work as it becomes clear that the gospel provides a coherent and satisfying underpinning for those standards which uphold and enhance a truly human life. So not only are we going to be transformed, but when we're actually transformed, we are going to transform culture. Because when you fall in love with the Lord and you love him above all else with all of your being, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you love your neighbor as yourself, your heart is going to be broken if there are children who are going to bed hungry, if there are children getting a subpar education, if there's a single mom who's struggling out there trying to make ends meet, your heart is going to be broken. And you're not going to be able to rest or turn your head. You're going to say, Lord, how can I help? Knowing that there are babies aborted daily in Memphis, Tennessee will break your heart. And you want to come alongside Life Choices and other ministries that help the mother. But we take care of the mother and the child from the womb to the tomb. <laughs> we minister to all of life because all of life is sacred. Because every individual has been created in the image 
of Almighty God. This glorious, beautiful, majestic, loving, faithful, true God of the universe has created us in his image. How can we not accurately image him to a lost world and draw them out of the darkness into the light? Bring them from hopelessness to eternal hope through the God of all hope who has granted us the assurance that this life is not all there is, that there's so much more, and that truly he is all that matters. This week on day five, there was a quote from Dallas Willard. It's on page 88 if you have your books and want to open there. But we were looking at spiritual disciplines. Dallas Willard was a Christian philosopher who taught at... um, in California, USC, for, I think, 40 years. Strong believer, profoundly impacted the students under him. He also profoundly impacted a lot of pastors and Christian leaders who are serving the church today. I love his writings. Um, But this is a quote from Dallas Willard about the cost of non-discipleship of not growing in Christ-likeness, of not discipling others. If the church is not focused on discipleship, we're not doing what Christ called us to do. The great commission is for us to go and make disciples, to baptize them, but then also to teach them all that Jesus has commanded. So we don't stop until we look like Jesus, okay? (laughs) That is our goal. It's not for us to have more knowledge. It's not for you just to know the Bible better. It is so that you look more and more and more like Jesus, that I look more and more and more like Jesus, so that people are drawn to Jesus in us, not to us. Listen to what he says. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, Faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good. Hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging circumstances. Power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly the abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live with him in it. We talked about this recently. What did Jesus say? Come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my load is light. We looked at that last week and we talked about rolling our burden, our load over onto the Lord, that thing that's weighing you down. We literally lift it up as an offering. Because if it's weighing you down, it's important to you. And so you're going to take it and you're going to entrust it to God who is good and who does good. And we leave it with him because his yoke is easy and his load is light. And then we're able to experience his overwhelming peace and strength in the midst of whatever that circumstance or relationship might be. And it's his peace that passes all comprehension that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's not a peace we can conjure. It's not a peace we can pretend we have because it's going to be evident before long. We're not actually walking in trust and faith and peace with him. But when we fully surrender, he takes over. And then he begins that 
transformation. And he's conforming us to the image of Christ so that we literally have his character. We act like him. We talk like him. We love like him. We see others as he sees them. Then we're able to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice and get in on what he's doing and see our culture penetrated with light.